Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I'm here with Tony Ranke and Samuel James, who I'll have them say a little bit more about themselves in just a moment. Good to have all of our listeners back. It's been uh, a little bit before we've had, since we've had one of these interviews, we had to have somebody reschedule, so we'll get that interview at the end of the season sometime later this spring. But good to be back with uh, a couple of friends here today to talk about technology. Cue the Napoleon Dynamite technology song if you're of that Gen X Vintage. I do want to thank our sponsor, Crossway, and mention in particular the ESV Study Bible. Really, uh, everyone can benefit from a really good study Bible, and there's plenty of good ones out there, but uh, I am partial to the ESV Study Bible. I think it's uh, the best one. Over a million copies sold. ESV Study Bible is created by a team of almost 100 leading Bible scholars and teachers from nine countries, 20 denominations, 50 seminaries, colleges, universities. It has 20,000 study notes. Here's a word from John Piper. The scope and theological faithfulness of the ESV Study Bible study notes is breathtaking. And there's a student study Bible. There's a concise study Bible, which I found a lot of people at, at our church like. If you don't want to lug around the huge orange hardback version, there's a concise study Bible. So great gift for yourself or for others. And if you go to crossway.org slash plus, you can find out how to get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. Speaking of Crossway, Samuel James. Samuel, what do you do? You work for Crossway. You also have lots of insightful commentary on various things online. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, um, so I live in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife, Emily, and our three kids, Charlie, Ruthie, and Wesley. Uh, I've been at Crossway for almost six years. Um, gotten Justin Taylor a lot of coffee in that time. So uh, yeah, good. Grateful to, grateful to be able to minister to him in that way. Uh, <laughs> I serve in acquisitions at Crossway, which uh, basically means I, I help authors kind of shepherd their book proposals through our process. Um, so I've been doing that for close to six years. And uh, yeah, just doing a lot of writing on the side. I, uh, I have a newsletter called Digital Liturgies that I write at Substack. Uh, and then I've been writing pretty regularly for the last few years for uh, Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, uh, a few other places. And uh, really interested, kind of in the intersection of theology, technology, and culture. So I've been doing that writing for uh, several years now. So, and I do have a book coming out in September uh, called Digital Liturgies. And uh, I'll say this: I've said this to a number of people. Samuel probably doesn't know this, but I've, with all of the the dangers of internet discourse, we're going to talk a lot about that. I've I've told people many times that Samuel is a good example of someone just started writing and consistently thoughtful and a good writer and fresh insights. And through that, just really quality content has built up a following in a good way and is somebody, especially on these issues that people listen to and are well to do so. Uh, did you mention your book? You have a book coming out, Digital Liturgies. That's the name of your Substack, right? And it's the name of the book? That's right. It's the name of the book, and the subtitle is Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Uh, so it's due September from Crossway. That's with Crossway. 
All right, Tony Ranky. If you're anyone watching this online, you can see Tony is in a. You can see he's a tech guy because look at he's got this cool indigo sort of vibe behind him, looking very furtively into the camera. Yeah. Tony, what do you do? And give us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I live in Phoenix with my wife and our two youngest, who are uh, 16 and 15 now. So that's our; those are our babies. And uh, yeah, love living in the desert. We've been here for three years. I've worked for Desiring God and John Piper for about the past 11 years. Um, primarily what I do is uh, uh, the Ask Pastor John podcast with John Piper, and uh, you might have heard of him. And uh, we're moving in on, I think, episode 2000 now. Wow. So trying to build kind of a reservoir of ethical content uh, from him. He, he, he says uh, APJ is kind of him making up for all the sermons he preached without 10 minutes of application. So <laughs> like, APJ is like 10 minutes of application every day, uh, three times a week, or we'll soon be going to two times per week. But yeah, it's it's been uh, a, a fun ride. That's great. Uh, it shows I I didn't realize, I think I knew, Samuel, you lived in Louisville, but I didn't realize that you were in Phoenix. Tony, when did you move to Phoenix? What precipitated? Uh-huh, no Been precipitation. Here about three but... years. Yeah, so we were in Minneapolis for seven, uh, eight years total, and uh, just kind of <laughs> done with the winters. And so moved to the desert. I'm very much a desert creature. I love it out here in Phoenix. And so, um, yeah, we've been out here for about three years now. So really you had, enjoyed it. You had no... Although it makes for some very early morning interviews. Oh, that's... Oh, I'm I'm doubly sorry then. I was thinking you were on Central Time. <laughs> I didn't see that we were in Eastern Time when we were planning this. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good 6 a.m. It's a good 6 a.m. All right. Well, thank you for that. Oh, because you didn't do... Uh, Daylight savings, either. That's right. Yeah. You, you Arizonans, you got something right. That's right. Rebels. Yeah. Uh, Tony has written a lot of thoughtful things about technology's most recent book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, published by Crossway, came out in 2022. So here's how I want to start our conversation to put you guys into some camps. And I know you, you, you probably agree on vastly, mostly everything when you talk about these issues, but maybe come at it from some different angles. So I would put Samuel in the category of a technology pessimist and Tony as a technology optimist. So though you're going to want to agree, let's just, for the sake of good discussion, if you'll own those categories, Tony, why are you a technology optimist? Yeah, reformed uh, theology pushes me in that direction, pushes me against uh, Ludditism, um, and what I've seen over the past, I mean, basically Ludditism has ruled the coop for 100 years in the church. And uh, 20, 15, 20 years ago, I started to think through Ludditism and sort of the theological underpinnings of it and started to realize it didn't answer all the questions and it really didn't provide the the substance that I thought that we needed as, as Christians to live in the tech age like we do and started to press into it and started to realize that there was a, a different trajectory in thinking through these things that went back to Calvin went through the Reformed Orthodox, the Puritans uh, went through Spurgeon, uh, Bavinck, Kuyper. There was a different way to think of technology and human engineering than, than simply a default Ludditism that sort of began 100 years ago. And so I started to press into that theologically and then eventually got to the, the text, the exegetical text. And I think there's like 14 key texts um, and came to the conclusion that basically I'm, I'm 
I'm an anti-Luddite is, is I guess how to, how I'd put it is, uh, thinking through technology in a way that's a little more theologically robust than a default position of anti-tech. Right. Tell us a lot of people have probably heard that term Luddites. Where, where do we get that as being somebody who's against technology who, cause there are actual historical derivations of that term. Yeah. It's kind of industrial revolution era, um, kind of pushing back on this idea that machines should take all human labor away or as, as much human labor away as, as possible. And so it kind of became a, a theological position that was, um, that's how it got, kind of got coined. And it's just kind of, I think of it more as just kind of a default position thinking like if you, if you say, if you say undermining things about Twitter or smartphones or nuclear power, it it feels Christian, it feels holy, it feels pious. Um, and I'm pushing on that because I don't think it actually is that simple. All right, we're going to come back to that. Samuel, you, you likely agree with most or, or all of that, but in your writing— you often come across more as a technology pessimist, and at least when it comes to the the effects that the digital world has on us. So if I can just put you in that category, what do you want to say from the technology pessimist side? Yeah, and it's, it's, a, good, it's a good question to kind of like where I identify on that spectrum. Um, I think technology realist would probably be a little bit more accurate okay. for, for how I would think of myself. Um, what, the the people who have deeply shaped my thinking on this uh, kind of tech critical uh, persuasion. So I'm thinking of Nicholas Carr, his 2010 book, The Shallows, which uh, is really just kind of the spirit that I'm trying to capture in my book. Uh, but then also Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, these kinds of influential uh, cultural critics who really looked at particularly mass media technology, as posing some serious challenges to how people are formed, kind of intellectually, uh, emotionally, even politically. So, uh, you know, Neil Postman especially gets into that. Um, so it, I think one thing that shaped my perspective was simply my age and my experience. So I, I'm old enough to have, to have some very vivid memories of a childhood without uh, internet access. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm young enough that I, I came of age and kind of, you know, intellectually came into my own uh, with the internet and particularly with social media, kind of mediating my experience of the world of ideas and a lot of social circles. And so that experience has really, um, I think, shown me some of the particular ways that I believe we are different kinds of people for the fact that these technologies tend to mediate our experience of the world. Uh, and particularly when I, when I started looking at scripture and I started looking at the kind of portrait of thinking and of living that the Bible holds out, and then I would read somebody like Nicholas Carr who presented all of this kind of empirical, not necessarily Christian, but just kind of uh, cognitive research about the way that internet technology shapes how we think, um, I started to realize that this has enormous theological significance, that it matters that we're able to kind of feel and to think in accordance with a, a physical embodied world, the way the world really is. And so putting those two things together has kind of put me in a more tech realist camp. And I, I, I tend to not 
I tend to not enjoy kind of pitting tech optimism versus tech pessimism uh, because the question is, what technologies are you talking about? So everyone's right. a tech pessimist in some things, and everyone's a tech optimist in some in other things. Um, so like we're you know we're not in the same room right now. We're all you know far flung across the country, and we're we're joined together by technology that I don't think any of us would necessarily take a pessimistic view of. Um, but but that's not to say that this technology is neutral. And I think that's that's one thing that I'm trying to get a lot of Christians to think in terms of is just because something is not intrinsically bad does not mean that it's neutral. That it has no effects. That it doesn't situate us in a certain way. Um, so that's kind of the the background of where I. I've been writing and thinking for the last several years. That's great. And I want to get into some specifics of both of the things that you have written. I, uh, I certainly don't want to claim I'm the, the, the third way between the two of you or, or that there is a between, but maybe there are others who resonate with me in this sense that I feel like I live like a tech optimist. I, I live with all of these things. We're doing this you know, as you said, through the internet, and I've been on Twitter, and I was one of the, you know, first kind of wave of bloggers. And I tell people sometimes, jokingly, though it's it's true, I would make fun of the bloggers, and then I did a blog. And I, I, I had sermons where I said how dumb Twitter was, and then I, I got on Twitter. I, I think I learned my lesson not to say podcasting was dumb, but now I do podcasting. <laughs> so uh, my my kids have, at least my older teenage kids, they have iPhones, we have streaming services, so all of these sort of technology. I feel like I am living in a lot of technology, and yet I find my heart and spirit resonates with the. I'll just say tech pessimism. In fact, Tony, I can, uh, I, I can really be drawn to a luddite, but I don't mm-hmm. do it. But I'm drawn to that in my spirit uh, when I read some of the books that. Samuel's mentioned, and even some of the things Samuel's written, and I'm not blaming him for this, but I find myself, you know, because I, I read Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan and all of those folks, or Jacques Ellul, and I read some of these guys, and I find myself, let's throw my iPhone into the ocean, get rid of my TV, get rid of the streaming, get rid of all of this, get off of Twitter, just, boy, my life would feel cleaner, better, uh, Tony, is that a a Christian sentiment you come across a lot? Is there anything that feels good that you resonate with? What sort of good, bad, or otherwise can you speak to? Because there may be a lot of people listening who feel that. I'm using all the technology, but yeah. a lot of me feels yeah. like I just wish it would be buried in the ocean. That's what I mean by default Ludditism. Yeah. Well, I have it in my um, heart. What Tony. I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, you're, yeah, 99% of Christians have that in their heart. <laughs> have the tech and in a sense hate the tech. What I'm saying is why don't we bring God into this equation? Why is he always left out? Why can't we thank God for the gift of the smartphone? Why can't we thank God for the gift of Twitter? Why can't we step back and look at technology as a stewardship of a divine gift? Why do we always have to deal with it as some as a human engineering is this thing that sort of like, you know, Steve Jobs just uh he manifested the iPhone out of nothing. You know, he's like this godlike figure who makes everything out of nothing. He doesn't. God makes everything out of nothing. Steve Jobs makes things out of the things that exist. And so looking at technology less is sort of like if it's a human product, then it's somehow uh, we should be uh, we should resist it. And thinking more in terms of the gift of the material universe that God has given us, 
We did not invent electricity. We did not invent nuclear fusion. We did not invent fossil fuels. Those were all things that were embedded into this pregnant creation that God gave us. So when we talk about gas-powered engines or we talk about things powered by electricity, why do we not start with gratitude and say, God, these are gifts from you that we now need to steward to love you and to serve others? And that's what I'm trying to help Christians wrestle with is why, when we talk of technology, is God always pushed out of the conversation? Because I don't think that is a healthy way to go about it. And I think there's a different way to do it that was being done prior to, say, World War I. Um, and that trajectory is there in the Reformed tradition. And so, um, yeah, I, I resonate with that. I was in that position for a number of years, just feeling torn. Um, and I, I, especially as I was raising my teenagers, right, I wrote 12 ways your phone is changing you, which is very negative on smartphones, negative on social media. This is the way it's changing us. It's, being, uh, it's, it's affecting us in 12 negative areas that we need to be aware of. So I wrote that book. And then at the end of that, uh, what I realized is I didn't have then a foundation of gratitude for tech that my kids could build off of and build an ethics of what they use and why they use it. So why does mom and dad have a smartphone and the 12 year old in the house doesn't? You know, I've got to explain to my 12 year old why they don't have a smartphone and why mom and dad do. Right. So why does mom and dad get one and the 12 year old doesn't? And what I realized as I was engaging in that conversation is I had no theological uh, foundation for stewardship built in their mind. Um, it was just a godless conversation. As soon as you talk about smartphones, social media, anything like that, it was just like God was out of the conversation altogether. And uh, I, I had to reckon with that. And that's what this third book is, is reckoning with is how do we bring God into the tech conversation in a real and biblical and substantial way. Tony, I want to follow up, just just piggyback a little bit. You have this section in your book, which uh, I, I really like. You give this little vignette, this example of, uh, I forget who it is who gives this story, but asks the, the question, if you could trade places with, is it John D. Rockefeller yep. 100 years ago, the world's richest man who by today's standards you know, would be 20, 30 billionaire. And so money is no object. You can buy anything that the world has to offer. And yet this little thought experiment, when you're initially drawn to say, well, yes, I would go back 100 years to be the world's richest person. I could build a castle for myself. And yet it only takes a few moments reflection to realize Oh, you, you, you don't have a car that can drive you places. Right. You can't fly easily places. If you want to go to Europe, you've got to take a long boat ride. Uh, you maybe have some primitive air conditioning in your house. You don't have it anywhere else. One in 10 children are going to die, on and on and on. Uh, I sometimes use the example I was reading a year or so ago, David Calhoun's two volumes on Princeton Seminary, which I just love, being yeah. a Presbyterian and reading about old Princeton. And I get this nostalgia yeah. feeling. I wish, man, if, though, if only I could have been back in the 19th <laughs> century with Hodge. And then there's this one line where uh, one of the Princeton guys, was Hodge or Alexander, somebody, you know, had some problem and they had uh, 12 leeches on his groin. <laughs> I was like, nostalgia gone. Get me back to the 2020s as fast as I can. Uh, Tony, why, why is it? Because I've, I've got other books, too. On There was one by the Cato Institute that had like 100 charts and graphs yeah. on how the world is 
objectively, now not spiritually, okay, right. we can totally. debate that, but, but objectively, by human prosperity and ease, by a magnitude better than at any time in history. Yes. Why do people struggle to see this? We've lost a sense of wonder, number one. Number two, we think of these uh, innovations. We think of you know safer cars, safer medicine, um, the fact that you know, children just don't die of natural causes, you know, it, like they did 100 years ago. And um, I mean, that was just a da- daily common life 100 years ago. We have streaming devices, we can communicate like this, we have uh, insulated homes, we've got air conditioning, heating, lighting, we've got all of these things. And again, this is why I think if we press in and realize that the creation is pregnant with all these blessings, we start to get this wide eyed wonder of God's generosity to us. I am a spoiled brat in the history of humanity. God has blessed me with more technologies than Jonathan Edwards could ever dream of, you know? And so I wake up in the morning and look at all of the, um, all of the computer chips that I own, hundreds of them all over the place. Uh, These are gifts from God that he's given to Mm me um, that I then steward, but I'm filled with a wonder and an awe for the, the generosity of God that leads to all of those statistics. You can go through all sorts of different statistics, whether it's entertainment, safety, travel, the speed of travel, you, know, you can get on a plane and go across the world in a day. You know, that's, that's insane. We're not talking about boats that take weeks and weeks. We're talking about uh, uh, jets that go 600 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. It's just mind boggling the technology that we have. And so I don't want that technology to be lost on Christians who don't have a category for wonder and awe and worship for the God who makes all of that possible. And so that's what I'm trying to reclaim. Like, you don't want to live 100 years ago. <laughs> Trust me, if you could spend a day 100 years ago and be a billionaire then and, and come back to your life now, you would come back to your life right now every time. Yeah, you look at the chart of uh, global GDP, for example, and it is, for all of human history, it is a basically flat yep. line until the end of the 18th century, and it starts to go up. And then you get 100 years ago, and it's the hockey stick, and it goes straight yep. up. And even in the last 20 years, global poverty, now there's still too much of it, we all agree, but global poverty has been just drastically reduced. The number of people who live in abject grinding poverty is safe to say at the lowest percentage by far it's ever been in human history, because for most of human history, that was how most people lived. And yet all of those measures we become blind to. it's, It's like when you do a you know, if somebody, you've all had a performance evaluation on, on a job and, or you've given one to somebody and you tend to just take for granted all the good things somebody does right. in their job. You just take that as a baseline. Yeah. Of course, they're really good at that. And you zero in on the things that really need to be improved. And we can be like that with the world we live in. We just take for granted, oh, well, of course I would have this medical care. Of course, you know, comedians have done these bits about, you know, they're sitting in a plane. <laughs> I'm flying in a metal box in the air. And the internet bouncing off of satellites is taking so long. What a terrible world <laughs> I live in. So we just, yeah, we become blind to it. Yes. I'm going to get to Samuel in just a moment. Uh, say a bit more, you know, one of the texts I think of, Tony, uh, is right at the very beginning, Genesis 4, and Cain and his line there, who are the progenitors of 
culture, technology, civilization, but Cain's a, a bad guy. Yep. How do we read Genesis 4? What sort of exegetical insights do you get from there? Well, Moses wants us to trace uh, professional music making, uh, basically uh, rudimentary genetics with livestock and metalworking back to these forefathers of innovation. Um, that's clear in the Bible. The Bible wants us to trace the lineage of those professions back to Cain's great, great, great grandsons who are going to be washed away in the flood, which raises all sorts of questions about, well, then how, did the, how does their tech get into the restart of humanity? Mm. And that brings in Noah's Ark. I mean, Noah's Ark is a midwife of all human engineering prior to the flood into the restart of humanity. That just blew my mind when I realized that, that the reason we can trace those forefathers of those innovations is the fact that Noah carried their technologies into the the new the restart. This raises the question of, yeah, what Cain deserved death. He should have died. He should have been executed for his murder, his cold-blooded murder of his brother. Um, that's very clear in the rest of the Old Testament. Like you kill somebody, you murder them in cold blood, your life is gone, right? Um, and somehow God, for some reason, God puts a mark on him and says, don't touch him, don't mess with this dude, don't fight him, don't kill him. He is going to be protected because he has a lineage that I have you uh, that I have need for, um, and that be, that then um, Cain himself becomes sort of a, a urban planner or a city builder, right? Mm -hmm. he, he's not going to grow grow crops anymore, and then out of the city, the city becomes the the volcano of technological innovation, and that comes out in his his lineage. So right from the you know, first few pages of the Bible, we've already got in place a very central story for how God is going to uh, send innovation into human human um, experience. And he's going to do it through a lineage like Cain. So he's going to use non-believers, non rebels to do it. And so already from, from there, we've got a more... Um, a more robust story than simply going to Babel and saying, oh, see the Tower of Babel, it's human engineering. It's human engineering is bad. It's, it's, it's right there from Genesis 4 and it goes on to Genesis 6, Genesis 11. You have all these stories that start to compound and build and tell this story of, of God's relationship to human engineering. So let me throw it to Samuel now. Anything in what Tony's been talking about, I've given him the floor for a bit to riff about the goodness of te technology you resonate with that? Anything you want to say? Uh, yeah, but I absolutely resonated resonate with it. And in fact, um, I was I was telling my wife just the other day. I didn't grow up flying in airplanes. Uh, my family almost never flew, and so as an adult, when I've when I've had various jobs that have put me on airplanes more, I I still have a sense of wonder that I can have breakfast in Minneapolis and have dinner in Louisville like that. That still doesn't seem like it should be the case. Uh, and so it, it kind of, it's just wonderful for me to think about. So I absolutely resonate with, with what Tony's been saying. I think where my thinking has been uh, located the last few years has been to kind of take digital technology and internet technology in particular, and to say, it, this is this is something that can bring great good, uh, and this is something that we should try to bring great good out of. But is there something intrinsic to its nature that undermines in some way the kind of people and the kind of life that we're supposed to have under under the Lord? And and so, for example, when we're talking about 
we're talking about GDP and kind of the, the wealth of nations and, and how technological and financial advancement in the last 200 years has benefited people around the world, countless probably billions of people. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. And yet I can hear a, uh, perhaps a secular atheist hearing us have that discussion and then kind of turning the table on us and saying, and, and, but why do you Christians say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil? It doesn't make sense because here you are talking about the goodness of all this wealth, and yet you have all of these Bible passages that you quote, warning against the pursuit of wealth, warning against the love of wealth. Um, and I think that's just kind of where we are as Christians with money. And I think there's a there's a way in which that's true of technology, true uh, or as well. Um, I think when we think about our relationship with money, it's true that, that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth, but yes, the Bible's attitude toward wealth is not neutral. It's warnings about wealth are not neutral. There, there's not a sense of, well, it's 50-50. You know, you can either, you know, you can try to become a billionaire or you can try not to and the Lord's indifferent to it. Actually, there are so many Bible passages that kind of condition us to think, hey, wait a minute, there's actually danger. There's spiritual danger with devoting your life to trying to accumulate wealth. And I think there's, I think that speaks to kind of the tension that's at the heart of the technology conversation, where something can be capable of great good and have virtue in itself, and yet there's a posture that we have to take to it as to take toward it as Christians. And the posture that I am thinking most of these days is embodiment. So, what does it mean when, because of the internet, because of digital technology? I, my sense of myself as a person becomes entirely divorced from my body, from my physical place, from the, from the created world that God has actually made. What happens when I can conceive of myself and conceive of others purely as mental projections on a screen? And I think one of the answers to that question is that the teaching of scripture becomes less plausible to us. So for example, when, when I see in the scriptures that God made mankind male and female, and that there's a beautiful complementarity between male and female, and that this creates a, an equality of essence, but a difference in roles. But then I, I get online and I don't see bodies in front of me. I see names and avatars and text. And there's, there's a, a kind of a devolution of personhood that and now what the scripture is saying doesn't make sense to me. It, it doesn't make sense to, to think that it matters that only men can be ordained ministers and there's, there's different roles for men and women. That doesn't make any sense because my experience of the world is mediated through completely disembodied technologies. And to me, it doesn't make any difference hmm. who you are or what body parts you may have because all I'm seeing is this experience of you reduced to words and images on a screen. Um, and so I think, I think that is a big reason for some of the cultural crises that the church is facing with regard to gender, with regard to sexuality. Um, I, I, I think that there's no instrument in the Western world has been as successful at kind of 
making people uh, suspicious of and push back against their given embodied reality than the internet. Because as this technology mediates our experience of the world, it just conditions us toward, toward certain ends. So I, I'm, I'm kind of of the same mind toward internet technology that I am toward wealth. I think the hmm. Bible, uh, I think the Bible allows for it. I think the Bible blesses the righteous use of it. But I also think the Bible warns against pursuing these kinds of things because our our calling as God's people is to be bent in a different direction and to value right. other things more. Yeah, that that's really good. The the embodiment is one of the aspects that a lot of people are talking about and Christians need to think about. And I, I want to talk about two specific pieces you've written, Samuel, and then get you to respond, and then let Sam, uh, let Tony as well. But these are two fairly recent. One from Desiring God last November, the power of intellectual technologies, and then from last. December at Mere Orthodoxy, Untangling Theology from Digital Technology, and just want to highlight a few of the really insightful points you make. So one, on this DG article, and here you reference Nicholas Carr and his book, The Shallows, which I, I too benefited from a number of years ago when I read it. And one of his central ideas, which you've been really good to, to also stress, is that these technologies, these digital technologies in particular, Carr says, they don't just extend our physical strength, and he uses like a, a plow or a microscope, but intellectual technology directly reshapes how we think. And one of the, the underlying realisms and at times uh, uh, very salutary warnings you're giving to us, Samuel, is to think technologies are not just tools that we use. It's not just, hey, you had a hammer and now you got a bigger, stronger hammer. But these technologies, so the internet is, a, is different than reading a book. And, and books were a technology. We don't realize that. You know, and probably Christians had a lot to do with the development of the Codex, and people think that that's maybe even uh, was speaking to their idea of a canon, because before that you have scrolls, scrolls you can add to. You can sew in new, you know, vellum to it. And a, a Codex, a book, is something that you hold in one place and is fixed. It's got a front, it's got a back, it's got covers. So books are a certain kind of technology that developed. Books, physical tactile objects, they train our brains in certain ways where, and you point this out in the article, you know, uh, an internet article is different. It can be the same truth communicated, but, but there's hyperlinks, there's browsers, just the experience is different. It trains you how to think differently, which is not necessarily bad, but you need to be aware of what's happening. And then just to, to mention a few things from this second article in the Mere Orthodoxy, because here, and this is where I found you so helpful over these last couple of years, Samuel, is you think a lot about the internet space and what and how it shaped us as Reformed Christians. This, this blogosphere, the way that the internet, I mean, so many of our divisions, and I've written about this too, why the Reformed community has splintered. And the big elephant in the room is what the internet has allowed for all sorts of communities. It's not just Christian or Reformed or Evangelical or Conservative. It's never been easier for smaller subsets of people to find other people like them. It's never been easier to get your th thoughts out there. And yet you make the good point that this does a lot of things. Well, one, it trains us to think, if I have something to say, 
I should say it. So silence is no longer expected. It also means that we're talking to one another when maybe as humans, we weren't even meant to have as many connections as we have. Maybe we weren't meant to say something about everything or to know what everyone thinks. Maybe we're not psychologically hardwired to receive the kind of praise that the internet can give us and the kind of condemnation that the internet can give us. So you've been really helpful to just think and help us think about the way internet discourse in particular, because so often when we're talking about, you know, what's going on out there in the church and the latest controversy, I'll, leave, I'll, I'll talk to people at my church who, they're not Luddites, but they're just not as online. You know, I'm on text threads with, with Justin and a bunch of other guys that we know, and between the four or five of us, even if we try to stay off Twitter, I feel like we all are so connected. We know every little thing that's going on. And I'll talk to, you know, even people my age who are not technology Luddites, and they'll say, oh, that Josh Butler article? I hadn't heard about that. What do you mean? That right. was a nuclear explosion right. in the internet world. And they say, I, I didn't hear about it until you said something in your article, Kevin, and wasn't that like three weeks ago? I don't hear anybody talking about that anymore. So there's my my mini sermon from Your Good Stuff, Samuel. So just riff on that. What are the dangers in just the digital discourse? And then, Tony, you can think if you want to agree or disagree as we highlight any of these dangers. Samuel. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think I think the... So the controversy you just mentioned, and probably others we can mention as well, uh, are probably a good illustration of how our our mass kind of social media platforms are not the kind of like uh, democratic Garden of Edens that we tend to think they are. Like this isn't just like the public water cooler. Uh, Twitter in particular was has been deeply shaped and deeply influenced by journalist culture. So mm-hmm. Twitter tends to kind of place a magnifying glass on uh, the information economy and kind of who's writing what and who is publishing uh, what things. Um, so that's why, for example, the recent controversy over Elon Musk taking away blue check marks and then maybe giving them back. I don't know what he's doing now. Uh, but that's why people are, are kind of like worked up about it and it seems significant. Well, the blue check mark is, is simply an evidence of how Twitter became kind of this, um, this gateway of information keeping, uh, that sort of, that sort of way to think about how, you know, it was kind of people setting themselves up as, as the arbiters of information. Uh, that's, that's kind of the culture that, that Twitter comes from. And I think that is a good example of why it would be a mistake for Christians and particularly church leaders to look at Twitter as what the church is saying, Mm. quote unquote. So when you look at Twitter, you're not getting a glimpse of the church. You're getting a glimpse of Twitter and you're getting a glimpse of a particular algorithm. And that particular algorithm is drawing from particular sources that are shaped by particular outlets. And and if you do enough digging, it turns out that most of the journalistic culture in this country is shaped by a handful of institutions, mostly on the East Coast. So Mm -hmm. you, you get from elite culture. Um, and I think I've written 
elsewhere about how Christians need to be careful that what they mean by engaging culture isn't simply responding to the Atlantic every month or responding really to, the New, to the New York Times. Because you're not really engaging culture. You're just engaging these particular elite bastions. And in so doing, you are ceding control of the conversation to these outlets. So that's a good example of how the internet kind of flattens distinctions, uh, flattens geography, and kind of focuses our attention in a specific direction. And that direction may not be the direction that we think it is because it's it's guided by particular algorithms, by particular um, values that these corporations have. Um, and I think the danger, and what I was trying to get at in the Mere Orthodoxy article, is that the danger is when we we do theology online. And, and I'm, I'm not saying we should never do theology online. I'm grateful we do that. Um, but the danger, though, is that when, we, when we're handling the Word of God online and we're kind of trying to apply Scripture to various issues online, we're often completely unaware of these dynamics and how they shape our reaction. So we are, we're basically approaching what is a very analog, I believe, a very analog book, the Bible, that has a very analog view of human flourishing that emphasizes our bodily limitations, our obligations to our, our spouse, our church, our neighbors, that has a very kind of localistic view of what the life that God expects from us. And we're, we're approaching that with a uh, a very kind of jaundiced uh, mass media technology mediated view of how to speak to these issues. And that kind of influences our instincts and how we talk to one another and, and the kind of things that we choose to talk about and the kind of things we choose not to talk about. Um, so I see evidence of this of this dynamic in evangelical culture. And I think a big part of responding faithfully to it is simply naming it and being able to identify it and say, this is what's happening. This is what the Bible kind of assumes of God's people. And how do we bring this more aligned so that we're aware of these dynamics and able to kind of push back against them? Yeah, that's really good. Let me piggyback on two things and then get Tony to weigh in. Uh, One thing you just said there, the way that Elite media companies' algorithms too set the agenda for the church. That that's true, and it's it takes discernment to know when we say things. But I was just thinking about this. You know, it, someone would have to look at the the stats right now. Is it objectively the case that in say 2019, 2020, 2021, to use a controversial example, more African Americans were killed by police than they had been? Or was that more than our now? Because that that's not blowing up the internet at the moment. Now, it's, it's probably one news cycle away from happening, but we're seeing all these shootings. Uh, is, is this more prevalent than it has been? Or are we hearing about it more? The, these are honest questions, but it's just to illustrate the fact that once those outlets start talking about something all the time— then we feel like cultural engagement means we also say something, which it may or may not be wise to, to weigh into those things. That's not the point. But it is to say, well, what do we as Christians feel like the world needs to hear or that needs to be spoken? So that's, that's one concern I really resonate with. Another one that you, you hit on in this article is the way in which the internet flattens discourse, nationalizes, or in some ways globalizes discourse. So lots of people have written about this, that all politics has become much more national, that local races are tied to national figures and national referendums so often. And I think that the the internet does that. So for example, take another one of these internet kerfuffles, the 
the, the winsomeness debates. Are Christians too winsome, or they need to be more winsome? Well, it, it, what's your context? What are you thinking of? Are you thinking about talking to the person right in front of you? And does anti-winsome mean what we really need is when we have personal conversations, we need to be more abrasive and more aggressive? Or are we speaking against winsomeness because some people have made a whole cultural strategy of how they talk to people on the internet in a certain way? So I'm aware of this, and I don't know how to get around it, but we all, when we say something, write something online, we have in our head probably you know, three tweets that I saw in a conversation I had with somebody at church here that went in a certain direction, and maybe somebody's, you know, article that I read that really annoyed me. And then you get out there, and you're speaking, and then a whole bunch of other people come up and say, well, wait a minute, but don't you know, you don't, what, you don't know how terrible my church is, right. what a bad pastor I have, my father was horrible, and he was comp, and all of these sort of stories, and you want to say, well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't meaning to talk to you, but of course it's the internet, so you're talking to everyone. What, what do you think, Tony, how do you read as someone who's rightfully reminding us of the gifts of technology, and, and you spend your professional life helping John Piper reach yeah. a digital audience, how do you think about what Samuel's pointing out, the way this internet culture is shaping us in some yeah, really I mean, I think negative I would give the ways. Thumbs up on everything he said. Uh, I think it maps on to where I was leading in twelve ways your phone is changing you. My the the question that I step back on is um, is technology neutral or is it never neutral? And uh, hmm. that that's kind of the question that uh, comes to my mind. So Melvin Kranzberg, who was the late uh, tech historian at Georgia Tech, he had this great line. He he penned the six laws of technology, and this first law was brilliant. It was this: it was technology. Is is neither good nor bad nor neutral. <laughs> it's none of those things, huh. which is a great yeah, way, I think, to say it. And uh, I chuckled when I first read it, but it's pretty profound. Saying technologies are neutral doesn't get us very far in this conversation at all. Every technology is, is preloaded uh, with certain biases that we have to acknowledge and we have to work through as Christians. And uh, these biases often provoke something in us by its potential, its potential to be used virtuously or sinfully by how the tech is fundamentally bent. And, um, you know, so trying to disentangle what's a virtuous use of a media and what's a sinful use of media, that's that's what I was wrestling with with 12 ways your phone is changing you. There's a sense among many Christians today that you must first address the problem tech before addressing God's glory and the gift of tech. And so um, I really, I think, had to write that book first before I could write God, Technology, and the Christian Life. But one thing I discovered that was new to me as I was writing this new book is that a theology of technology is basically a theology of the city. Uh, it's the same story. Mm. Um, I, I was I was trying to see how human engineering, human innovation mapped into Genesis to Revelation. And what I realized is going back to Cain, these are just intertwined with the story of the city. They're one story. Mm. Um, and so our cities are not merely good or bad, and they're certainly not neutral. Um, and so God's relationship to the cities of man is complicated. Uh, but it, mir- it mirrors that exact storyline of, of technology in, in the, the lineage that we kind of see from Genesis to Revelation. What we find, for example, is, uh, okay, so if, if cities and technology are basically mapped onto the same storyline, we get to Revelation 2 and 3, and we read seven letters uh, to seven churches in seven cities, each city spring-loaded with certain idolatrous biases. 
And you would say, well, mm-hmm. Christians run from the city, flee from the city because the city has idolatrous bents, right? No, they're not called to flee the city. And so I think that same dynamic must be at work when we're thinking of technologies around us. Every social media platform is designed to encourage you to do things with it that would violate Christian standards of fairness and love and charity and modesty. And uh, that's why I think in the book, I say, you know, if if your conscience approves living inside of a city among all of its cultural pressures and idolatrous biases, which is what we have in Phoenix, right? You come to Phoenix for the good life, to golf, to get a tan, to retire, right? Those are idolatrous uh, bents in Phoenix if you take it too far. If you think the good life is moving to Phoenix and golfing every day, if you think that's the good life, that's an idolatrous bent that I have to fight against if I'm gonna live in the city of Phoenix. And I believe God has called me here and I believe that I can minister to the people of Phoenix, but I I can't be naive. The city is not neutral and none of our technology platforms are either. I hadn't thought of that before, but that really makes sense. And it maps on to what you said earlier, just the, the instincts we have as Christians. So I think a lot of Christians, and I can feel this in myself, can can feel like rural or country is is purer, right. is better, is is less trammeled by modern idolatries. And yet if anyone who who lives in those places will tell you, yeah, there's some real blessings and there's thick cultures and there's traditions. And there's a lot of dysfunction there, too. And so then you get the people that swing the other way, and because Christians can be nervous about cities, make it sound like if you're not in the city, then you're not a good Christian. And you can see some of the same pendulum swings with with technology. I want to get each of you to to answer at least one last question, if you can stay just a a few more minutes. I do want to mention before I get there, uh, another sponsor, Scriptura, they make great Bibles heirloom sort of Bibles, but also you just use, I have a couple of them. They're such nice leather. You feel like you want to just sleep on them. Uh, And maybe you want to think of a possible Mother's Day gift is coming up. So check out Scriptura and their line of Bibles. They also will restore your Bible, put a new cover on it. If you've got a Bible that you've had forever, you got your notes in it, they can do that too. LBE listeners can receive 15% off their order with the code LBE15. So thank you to Scriptura. I want to give to each of you at least one last question, and and I want you, uh, uh, I'm going to bring to you my own pathologies, and you can counsel me. So let me start first with Samuel. I read your stuff, and I I can find myself, as I said earlier, agreeing with you 100% and feeling like I'm I want to get off. I'm going to cancel Twitter. Uh, I'm just going to write books that are hardcover. I'm going to, I'm not going to look at the internet. I'm going to get a rotary phone. I don't want my, any of this stuff because just to fight the beast with little nibbling around the edges feels like it's just not going to work. I, I, I so see and feel the dangers that I want to just be rid of it is so help me or people like me, Samuel, should some people do that? Would you counsel people not to do that? What should people listening to this who feel all of those kind of dangers, but they're very online, how do you counsel them to live as disciples of Christ? That's a great question. And should I cancel Twitter and writing online and not my podcast, but... <laughs> uh, so... I- I would I would start with 
the reality that um, so much of the Christian life is contextual. So we have we have biblical commands in Scripture that we're all bound to follow under allegiance to Jesus. Um, and then, but so many of what specific steps we take to get there depends on person to person, right? So you wouldn't counsel necessarily, uh, two people who are in very different Mm. situations to necessarily have the exact same approach. Repentance might look different for both of them. Um, and, and so that's where I would start is that despite our desire for a one size fits all approach, like just, just take what is the absolute have to do list and I'll do it. I was like, well, that, that doesn't exist. There, there is no have to do list. Instead, there are specific ways that we can be more faithful with the attention span that God's given us. Our attention spans are not infinite resources. They're finite. And we, we choose to, and they're not fungible either. We choose to spend on one thing and we don't spend on another thing. Excuse me. So, I would, I think for me in my own life and my own journey through this, it has not led me to a total rejection of online technology, but it has led me to bring other people into my life who mm. can change my password, who can text me as this happened, uh, about a year ago, somebody texted me and said, Hey brother, I think you should delete that. Uh, and I said, okay, you're right. I should delete it. So I, I think bringing people into my use of technology and giving them permission to say, I want you to hold me accountable and to help me hold myself accountable that these technologies, I'm not serving their values, but they're serving mine. In the words of Cal Newport, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making this technology mm-hmm. serve what I think is ultimate rather than just doing whatever Silicon Valley tells me to do with these devices. Um, so I would start there. I would start by getting somebody who has authority in your life to say, Hey, I want you to be able able to, to, to pull me back from the brink. If you, if you can see that my kids or my friends are trying to get my attention and I'm just scrolling mindlessly mm. and I, I'm just not present, then I want you to be able to say, Hey, why don't I change your password on that app for a, a few weeks? And, and let's, let's, let's try to reset. I would start there for, for the vast majority of people. I think some folks will need to take a seriously hard look at their subscriptions, at their memberships. Um, um, because there could be, uh, m- and in fact, I think there probably are for most listeners, there are ways in which we're using internet technology that really don't have any practical redemptive value. Uh, mm. And if they do have practical redemptive value for someone else, then they're not giving it to us. Um, and we may not be able to use them faithfully. Um, I think people probably need to look at their own patterns of sin and their own patterns of uh, vice and to see, is there a particular social media uh, or a particular internet technology that brings this out in you? Are are, are you given to anger? Is there a particular platform that sent that seems to monopolize on your anger? Are you given to lust? Is there a particular platform that seems to monopolize on your lust? Are you given to laziness? Is there so on and so forth? Um, and so it starts with just this kind of honest self-assessment, letting the word of God cut us open like it does. And then letting other people come, uh, to alongside us to say, Hey, this is, this is the patterns that I see in you. And, and the last thing I would say is that, 
the Bible's view of wisdom and of human flourishing places so much emphasis on the physical world that God made, our, our embodied relationships with each other, uh, and the local church. So the local church is not a virtual thing. It's, it's not. It's, it's a physical embodied congregation, uh, and we are, mem- we, are, we are body parts of it. That's what Paul says. We are members of it. He's using physical language there. And so I think the dominant note in our Christian life needs to be that the physical and embodied time that we spend uh, either in the Word or with other Christians needs to weigh so much more than the time that we're spending online communicating. Mm. So what I, what I told a group of Christians at a church just a a couple days ago was if your instinct is to follow someone in your church on social media, how about call them, invite them to coffee instead, get to know them instead of just following them. If your tendency is to, um, you know, try to try to live stream a service, no, go be a part of that church, uh, fight against the, the tendency in our society to digitize everything and to Mm. escape the awkwardness and the vulnerability of embodied presence and lean into it because that is how God created us. And anytime we lean into the way God created us, we will be glad we did because that's the way we're supposed to be. No, that's a really good word. That's really helpful. Let me end here with you, Tony. So let's get very practical. Let's talk about iPhones. You wrote a book about how phones change us uh, and talk about screens. I think that probably me and my family are relatively normal. I think there's some things that we do well with screens, and I think there's some things that I I wish we did a lot better. So I have nine kids. Our rule has been they uh, they won't get a phone until they're 13. Some people say, I can't believe you do it that, but that's what we've done. I think we do some things well, like we know the passwords to our kids' phones. If they're on them or screens, they're supposed to be in a, you know, not locked away in their rooms, hopefully, but in a public sort of area. And we can, they know that we can, they, they charge their phones in a public area at night. So they know we can get on there. We could see what they were doing. We could look at their texts. We can follow that. If we, so they just know that's that possibility is out there. Uh, so I think there's some things that, our basic safeguards that I feel like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're doing okay. And yet I, I'll just tell you that there's lots of times where kids or their parents are standing around scrolling on an infinite scroll and mindlessly looking at something. And with little kids, we are always trying to fight the, I mean, my two-year-old, her, her, Great. I want to say her best friend, but is green because we have one iPad that's wrapped in that green foam. And so she just always is saying, Daddy, where's green? Where's green? Daddy, I love Cocoa Melon. Where's green? And we know it. it's a good way to get things done as parents. Yep. Grab this iPad and watch it. And, and I think my wife and I go back and forth sometimes thinking, look, I watched TV growing up, you know, get some iPad time. It's not ruining you. And yet we read lots of scary articles and we think, oh, your brain is mush. You're, you're ruined. So speak into that because I, I have to think just a lot of Christian parents are feeling that same thing. We're muddling through yep. it. There's some rules that work, but boy, I feel like it's way too much screen time overall. 
Give me or any of us your well, counsel. It's a big topic. I mean, I would love to write a book at some point on parenting in the digital age because I've learned so many uh, lessons from my failures. Um, the, probably the biggest tip that I learned as a parent is that when you have kids in the home and they're using Wi-Fi, um, so this is pre-smartphone, they're using a tablet, you can control um, screen limits. You can control what they see, how long right. they see it very easily. When you graduate to a smartphone and they have mobile web access off mm-hmm. of the family Wi-Fi at home, you have now opened them up to influences that are way beyond probably what you even know you've given to them. So you've sure. got to use that time before they get a smartphone to train them and to show them what it means to have limits and even enforce those limits and to see how they respond to those limits and what they do when they have the iPad. What are they looking for? What are they searching for? Do they have any sort of discipline? And you could train that in them before you give them a smartphone. Um, find things like the uh, circle device is, is one that we use where it just limits, you know, uh, our kids got yeah. like 15 minutes of YouTube and then it's over, you know, for the day. Um, you're training them because at some point when you give them a mobile web and there are ways to make smartphones dumb. I mean, you find somebody in your church who is really good at that. Every church seems to have one uh, guy or, uh, or woman who's in the tech industry who can make a smartphone dumb and they can show you how to put on parental controls and things like that. But once you make that step and give them the smartphone, you've really opened them up to a whole new world. And you have to make that decision very thoughtfully, very carefully based on each of your kids and how disciplined they are. Um, so I would say that, um, that that's the first thing that comes to mind. But I think the things that you're putting in place, kids do not have screens in their bedrooms at night. That's super important. And you've got that in place, uh, using, uh, using computers and things in public view of the home. That's really important. Those things are important. But at the end of the day, if your kids are watching you and you're on a laptop for 10 hours a day, you are teaching them something by your habits. They don't necessarily know what you're doing. Uh, but mm. they're being taught like, oh, you sit down and you look at the screen. You know, there's like a New York Times uh, cartoon where it's these two dogs looking at the owner and the owner is just sitting at a desk looking at a computer and the dogs say, yeah, he was bred for this, you know, <laughs> bred for just staring at a screen. You know, it's so yeah. weird. hundred years ago, again, people would have thought we're crazy to just sit in front of a screen, but right. we're habituating our, our kids to do this. This dawned on me when we were on a family vacation and my 15-year-old son, we were up in uh, northern Minnesota and we found this waterfall, this 25-foot waterfall. is incredible. And uh, we were hiking. And so we just said, let's spend the day here at this waterfall. So we're watching it and there's, you know, all sorts of uh, boulders and things around this drop pool. And we're just hanging out in the, it's in the morning, but it starts to get warmer and warmer by about 11 o'clock. It's getting hot out. My son says, my 15 year old son at at that point, this is several years ago. He says, dad, let me jump off the 25 foot waterfall into the drop pool. And I said, no way you're going to break your neck. The the pond is black. You can't see the rocks underneath or whatever. So he says, okay, fine. I won't jump, jump off of uh, the waterfall. So he's just playing in the water about noon. It's like a hundred degrees It's super hot and two road workers pull up to the top of the waterfall and they come out and they strip down to shorts. Um, they're like scuffed with asphalt. So they're road workers and they just hop off of the top of the uh, waterfall and plunge into the plunge pool. And then they get back up, do it again, go back up, put their clothes on and drive off and go back to work. And so my son comes back to me and says, dad, you, you can see that this is safe. I want to do it. And I said to him, okay, this is a parenting moment. And I knew this uh, sermon illustration was being born in the moment. It's yeah. the only time it's ever happened to me. But I knew a sermon illustration was being born in that moment. I said, we'll let you jump off the 25-foot waterfall under one condition. And that is, I'm not going to film it. 
mom's not going to film it and we're not going to film it on your phone but you can do it and you can experience the thrill and you know what he did he threw his arms up in the air and he said well then what's the point what would be the point of doing if it wasn't filmed right um and that led to a discussion when you're parenting teens it's all about concessions right and so we eventually said okay you Uh can you can jump we'll film it but you can't share it for a week you have to give us your phone the rest of this family vacation you're going to be offline and so it worked out great but he jumped we filmed it he survived he had a fun time but it it just (laughs) showed you like like that is so ingrained in him like if if it's not filmed it's not worth doing and it wasn't but a few moments later after that experience that i realized that i had had an iphone camera in front of his face since the day he was born yeah first steps first words first baseball game first t-ball game first recital first everything dad's there with his phone in front of him. So I want to, you know, I want to make fun of my 15 year old son for being habituated to wanting to perform in front of a screen, but it dawned on me pretty quickly that I had built that into him. He had been an actor in front of dad's iPhone since the day he was born. So I think, you know, when we look at these, these issues of, oh, my kids have these tendencies online, mm-hmm. I think they're picking up a lot more from mom and dad than we may want to admit. Yeah, that that is a that is a sermon illustration with a lot of application. Yeah, so it's been maybe well I'll have used. to steal that. A, a friend of mine one time, his son was. <laughs> I'm just glad there was at least a happy ending and he was okay. Yeah, I want to thank you both for for being here and Tony once again. Check out his book on on the iPhone and most recently just came out last year, God Technology in the Christian Life, published by Crossway. And of course, listen to Ask Pastor John. Isn't there a book coming out compiling some of the APJs? Yeah, I took our 750 most popular episodes and tried to <laughs> synthesize them into one book by paraphrasing paraphrasing them and uh, short, sort of showing you how John Piper's brain works when it comes to various questions resource. and things like that. And so it's a big one. Yeah, it's great. And then Samuel James uh, writes for a number of different outlets and he's got his book coming out with Crossway in September on digital liturgies. Thank you both for being here on Life and Books and Everything. And until next time, for all of us and our listeners, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book, and maybe a good book you can hold in your hand.